Oh, baby, we're going to do it. We're going to do an episode, even though I'm sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. As the rain continues to fall on the roof above me, we're going to battle through. I'm going to whine a little bit at the beginning, as always. I'm going to complain a little bit, but I'm also going to feel good because we got an interview. We got a conversation with a real stand-up comic, as promised. The way I ended the last episode, I said, I got a real guest. I got a real comedian coming on the next episode, and that next episode is this episode. So if you're with me right now, you're about to hear from Mal Hall, my old friend from San Diego, who I met in the Clear Channel building, which is probably extinct, or maybe it's called iHeartMedia. I don't know. Is radio still happening? I think it is. I think I heard radio exists. But I imagine it's all just robots. It's all AI now. Can't be real humans still doing radio. But back when it was humans, I was in the building with Mal. Got to know him a little bit. And even though he was working in the radio biz, he was already a comic. He was already putting on really fun comedy nights around San Diego, coffee houses, and then eventually a basement bar called the Tipsy Crow. Some of the best shows I've ever seen were these big Mal Hall productions. And I even figured when I started this podcast, I want to interview some of the interesting people I've met on the path of life. So I was hoping to get a hold of Mal. And he put out a special on YouTube called The Ice Cream's Not Ready. And that was the moment where we both thought, let this vehicle, let this podcast vehicle attract three to four clicks on his special, on his YouTube special, which I recommend. And it's family-friendly comedy, all right? I don't even know if he would label himself a clean comic, but it really is clean comedy. So for the whole fam, any age, check out Mal and just go on YouTube. Or if he's coming to a city near you, check him out. Great dude. Was excited that he was willing to join my podcast. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mal Hall. Yeah. How's it going, dude? You look crystal clear. It's good. Damn, I wish this was a video. It's just audio. Oh, Okay. No, no, Perfect. stay then with can... me. It's good to see you, but what okay. I actually release is just an audio podcast. Yeah, I didn't know. This so... is so much better, though. <laughs> How's it going, man? Good. Great to see you, Mal. Good to see you, too. What part of the world do you live in? 20 minutes north of San Francisco, San Rafael, in Marin okay. County. Okay. What about you? Are you in L.A. or San Diego? I'm in San Diego. So, like, 10 years ago, I left San Diego. I think you lived in L.A.? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I moved back here when we when we were pregnant with my son, because it's like you can't raise a kid in L.A. And yeah, then I moved back because her family's here. My family's here. You have kids. So it's like, uh, yeah, wherever your community is, is where it's easiest. So it's I moved here. I just need to be close to the airport and have stages to go on to work. And I can go to L.A. whenever I need to. So I'm here. Yeah, I was on your website. I mean, San Jose, Ronard Park, Portland, you are up and down the coast having kids. I mean, you want to be around for bedtimes, but have mm-hmm. you had to change your schedule up, change your tours up a little bit just to be in the house a little bit more? Not really. I think um, this is my career. This is what I do to provide for the family. So it's I go on the road with zero guilt. I go on the road with pride that I'm representing my family well and when i'm at home i'm present and i'm at home and for me five days a week i'm waking up with them my son only goes to daycare a couple times a week and then so i'm with them all day every day when i'm home and then they go to sleep and then i go out to work 
So it's like I'm with I'm with them. I'm present. And so when I'm on the road, I don't I have no guilt with it currently. Hell yeah. Do you do is this a this is like a clean podcast? No, I swear you can swear. Okay. Um no, nothing okay. clean about it. Actually, that's a good question because I'm gonna ask you about cleanliness a little later. I started this like five years ago. I thought it would be more of this, like in, interviewing uh-huh. interesting people, but it's just me rambling most weeks. So this is you, special. It's um, an exercise. That's cool. totally, totally. All right, Mal, I want to go way back. <clears throat> I remember when I was in the Clear Channel building, uh, my boss knew I loved stand up. And he said, we actually have a stand up comedian in the building. And he mentioned your name. But I didn't necessarily know what your role was. What were you doing in radio at the time? I remember talking to you about the craft, about the business, but I don't exactly remember what you were doing at Clear Channel. So I the only reason why I was in the Clear Channel building is because I was going to college to be a sports broadcaster. I wanted to be a sports center anchor. And so part of my communications major was I had to take an internship at a in a some sort of communication capacity place. And so randomly I want uh, something on the radio. And when I went to pick up the prize, <laughs> I talked to the, the promotions person at channel nine through three. So I started in promotions and then moved over to board op. And then I went from board op to assistant producer for Dave Shelley and chainsaw. And Uh, And then I did nights and weekends for the country station. And then at a certain point, I think uh, the last job I had was with Dave Shelley and Chainsaw. And at that time, I was like going to school. I was doing the morning show, going to school and doing open mics. And I was doing open mics, doing stand up in L.A., Orange County and San Diego. And then I would sleep in my car in front of the station and try to try to get to the morning show on time. And I was late a handful of times over a too short of a period. And so they had to let me go. And um, so that was my last job in radio was producing with Dave Shelley and Chainsaw. I didn't realize that. So the initial path might've been broadcasting, but you seem to have entered, even when you were an intern, you already had the love of comedy, had the idea that you wanted to be on stage. Yeah. yeah. So I, from six, I saw Eddie Murphy raw when I was 16. Right. My mom was, was uh doing everything she could to not allow me to see this like i borrowed the tape from a friend and she saw what i was getting ready to watch hit the tape one day randomly i find the tape when she's not at home and i'm like i'm gonna watch this (laughs) watched it and i was like that looks like the coolest job ever you just you tell jokes to a stadium of people and then you get to ride on a limousine after that's amazing but i grew up in the country i grew up in the rural, this rural town outside of San Diego called Petrero, which is population 646. Like, I didn't know. I'm basically, you know, small town country kid. And so I didn't know how to start. I don't know anyone who's a comedian. Like, I always just knew I wanted to do stand up, but I didn't know how to start. And I didn't research how to start. I just knew in my head, I think I'd be a comedian. It'd be fun. And I wasn't <laughs> funny either, to be clear. But when I was interning at channel 933 i worked an event with aj from aj's playhouse and he told me he did stand up before he did radio and so i asked him oh how do you start so buy a notebook and write down your funny ideas and then find a stage where they'll let you talk and find out if those ideas are funny and it took me a year and a half after he told me that to go on stage for the first time and since that day i haven't stopped 
what do you mean you weren't funny? So you're watching Eddie Murphy and you say, this looks appealing, this career. I want to do that. But you had a self-conviction that you were not a funny person. Yeah, I was I was definitely not a funny person. I um, then why would comedy even appeal to you? Because it looked fun because I wanted to be the funny person, like oh, okay. even to this day, even to this day, like when people find out I do stand up, oftentimes they're surprised because I'm not like uh, <laughs> and you know, this from being in the building, like I wasn't like a clown, like I'm not trying yeah. to make people laugh True. all the time. I'm True. more of like uh, my style of comedy is is observational humor and I tell st- like stories. And so I'm not trying to be funny all the time. If anything, I'm like noticing stuff from recording in my brain and taking these notes and seeing like do other people notice this so i was like i'm kind of shy at heart and i like hanging out around the funny people so that's why watching that special i was like wow that's like awesome it's like this guy's just i wonder how you start that or how you learn how to do that and so i uh wasn't funny i remember telling people in like one of those promo meetings i was like um think i'm gonna try to be a comedian too and several people were like how are you gonna be a comedian you're not even funny and i was like (laughs) oh okay cool (laughs) well i'm gonna figure it out right personal win though personal win several of those people have purchased tickets to see my show and i've seen them at the show so nice and enjoy i want i want in the long run yeah yeah, for sure actually that makes sense what you're saying because you're not a comedian You understand the science behind it, the craft of comedy, the business of comedy, the promotions behind comedy. So when they say grab a notebook and start writing jokes, what you've done with this career is way beyond joke writing. By necessity, by necessity, I've had to. I mean, the joke writing is came first, like that's all I focus on first. And then it's like, oh, well, I'm essentially an independent band. So if I want people to come to my show, I need to promote my show. When people come to my show, what's the experience that they should have when they're at the show? Like, and so I've put on all these hats for my company. And so I've sort of learned every step of the way, like through trial and error, what works, what doesn't work for me. And, you know, stealing from big companies. Oh, what is, why does Nike do this thing? Why does Coke do this thing? I wonder if I could translate some of that to like what I do. It's funny, a lot of people, I've I've gotten the compliment a lot about like, oh, you're so good with merch and social media and this, this, this. Yeah. It's like so easy for you. And it's like, I've just really, like, it's a very hard job. And so I want to be successful at it. So I just try to work at all the stuff that I can't afford to pay people to do right now. So it's like, once I can afford to have someone else do <laughs> yeah. this stuff for me, it's like, I've gladly let them do the work. Yeah, I mean, if the stage time is not just given to you on a platter, you created the stage time. I mean, that's totally kind of the approach. And I remember when I met you, you were doing shows at Lestat's, which was a coffee house in San Diego. And I was aspiring, like very, very side aspiration, not as a career, but just to get a few minutes here and there. And I think you were weird. You're like, are you even a comic? What do you want? <laughs> and then you <laughs> called me one night. And you're like, I actually can't make a show at Lestat's. I'll give you, you know, eight minutes just gave me an address, head out to this coffee house. And I remember being in the back room and there were actual comics who came down from L.A. And I realized, yeah. oh, Mal puts on real shows. This isn't just like stumble <laughs> into a coffee house. Does anyone know a joke who's drinking a cappuccino? But it was really yeah. cool to see how serious yeah. it was. And I think 
after that, you got involved with the Tipsy Crow, which in my opinion, San Diego, you know, it's not viewed as such a great comedy city. There was the Comedy Store, a few other clubs, and now the American. But for what it's worth, I thought those Tipsy Crow nights at their best were some of the best nights of comedy I've been around. I mean, that was just I, brilliant promoting. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. That the Tipsy Crow is is one of the things that I'm very proud of. Um, and that all started because of what you just said, which is like when I first started doing stand up, I realized like in order to get good at, at stand up, it's like any other art. It's like you have to do it a ton. And when you first start doing stand up, they don't give you a lot of time because most comedians like you're not good when you start mm -hmm. so three minutes maximum five minutes if you're super lucky to find an open mic they'll give you five minutes that's crazy and so i was a couple of years in and i was like i was realizing like i think this is going to be my thing i don't think i want to be on sports center anymore i think this is it i want to be a comedian for real it's like i need to get on stage more and i noticed that what people did if they wanted to to get more stage time as they made their own stage. They made their own shows. And so there was an open mic at Tipsy Crow. And if you've never been there before, it's in the gas lamp in downtown San Diego. And it was on like the hottest corner in downtown. And in the basement of this bar, they had this very New York feeling exposed brick, like actually disgusting little dungeon where people would like dance and just <laughs> make a ton of mistakes. But it looked perfect for a comedy club didn't it yeah and yeah and so after the open mic i was like there should be a comedy show here and so my nerdy ass put a powerpoint presentation together and came back and <laughs> met with the general manager and said you know i could start a cool comedy show and the goal with that show was make sure every other comedian on the show is funnier than me and then i'll know it's a good show like i can't be the funniest comedian on the show or it'll be really bad and so that's how I push myself to get better. It's like when I started, these comedians are funnier than me. And then at a certain point, it's like I passed them. And so it's like, well, your level's not going to be on the show anymore. Like I need to bring up comedians that were like actually touring and I would watch their sets and learn mechanics. And we did 11 years there, 11 years of shows there. And it was like some of the best times, some of the biggest comedians in the world who are like friends of mine have been on that stage in that basement with 80 people. Like you've been there, like everybody was yeah. in there super close. Yeah. Like the vibe and the energy was so cool. So yeah, I appreciate that. It was super fun. It was straight medicine. I mean that I would leave in such a good mood. It was like euphoric and the two that stand out, Brian Scalero and Andrew Santino before he was a name. I remember just seeing this redhead mm -hmm. making fun of himself. He was so good. I mean, I was crying. It was the type of laughter that was actually painful. I was worried about myself for a moment. <laughs> yeah. And then to see his career unfold, I love saying, oh, I saw him in a basement of this place called The Crow in Scalero. Yeah. I mean, that was cool. You found some incredible, incredible comics. Like when I started, I was living in San Diego, but I think I moved to L.A. a couple of years in. And so I would just see people around town and go, oh, I do this show once a month. You want to come do the show? Yeah. Santino. I want to say... Well, Angela Johnson did it for sure. Marco Cho, Alonso Bowden, Jay Larson, Rory Scovel, like I just um, Melissa Villasenor, who was on SNL. Scovel's incredible, too. Yeah, just like a ton of, yeah, amazing. It was like a good networking tool, too. So it's like 
comedians would come down there and run their specials before they would tape them because the energy was so cool in the room. It was like uh, a lot of work, but it was fun. It was a fun time. Have you found that comedians are friendly in general? Like, is there a camaraderie or is there a cutthroat element of these are my competitors, even though I know you're all nice to each other <laughs> backstage? I kind of wonder when you see one another, is there in the back of your mind this competitive feeling sometimes, especially when they're your age and at your stage of your career? Yeah, I think there's a um, amount of um, of competition. Every single comedian, it's like sports, like you want to be the best every night. Like I would love every time I go on stage, the, the goal is to do material that I'm proud of, that I believe in, but also for the audience to leave and remember, if they don't remember anyone's name on the show and they just go, oh, that Mal Hall was hilarious. There could be 10, 15, there could be two or three other comedians on the show. If they don't remember anyone else's name, I did my job. And so there is competition. It's a small community. It's a clicky community. So I think there's competition among friends and there's competition among people you don't like it's like uh so there's friendly competition and then there's like oh, i'm trying to bury this guy <laughs> competition as well it's pretty it's fun but it's like uh it's kind of a night to night audience to audience situation you know the audience really dictates at the end of the day who's winning you could do a set that killed last night murdered last night uh for the audience you know, the very next night and you could literally hear crickets. So it's kind of like night to night who's coming to see you. That's the X factor is like finding out how to how to get each crowd to to see the picture that you're describing. But if you're present with each performance, how do you stay confident? Like, let's say you bomb three nights in a row. Do you ever check yourself and wonder, wait, is that a true indicator of who I am? How do you maintain that confidence when you will have some nights where you must feel like I'm not good at this if I'm not getting laughs? Right. If you're bombing three nights in a row, that's something's going on. <laughs> something's going on. It's probably you. If it's three nights in a row, <laughs> four nights in a row. Uh -huh. But there are times where like, I know I do this. Like um, if I'm having a tough set, I will do a couple of jokes back to back to back that are high percentage connect with a ton of audiences. So it's like this joke, this joke has a 90% success rate. So if this crowd doesn't laugh at this, then it's not me. It's them. The go-to material. Could, yeah. And I could sleep at night. It's like, all right, that's not me. I am, you know, there are times where it's like, if you're, if you're going to write new material, there is a likelihood that it's not going to be, I mean, these jokes don't come out polished the very first time we say them on stage. So it's mm -hmm. like, they have to start somewhere. You have to take a chance. And sometimes if you're being disciplined, like how I try to do it sometimes, sometimes I will tell myself like, Hey, here's five brand new bits. And this is all I'm doing tonight. I'm not going to allow myself to dip into material that's, that works just so I can get some of that um, gratification. Yeah, I guess you come this far in your career, you probably get used to the volatility. But I remember when I was a kid, big Giants fan, I heard Matt Williams interviewed. He was the Giants third baseman and he was good. And he said, every single time I'm on deck, I'm nervous. And I was shocked. I didn't know professionals at that level still felt the nerves, you know, of us little leaguers who look up to them. 
But what about you? Are you still someone that feels that type of nervousness when they're about to announce your name? Or have you, in a sense, just gotten used to the flow? I haven't felt nervous in a little while. Like, I feel excited. Like, going on stage, when I'm that, that 10, 15, 30, 45, an hour, that time that I'm on stage, it's like the best time I have outside of hanging out with the kids every day. It's like, what? Like, I get to do this. It's like amazing. So like when it's my turn, I'm like almost annoyed that there's someone up performing. It's like, are they done yet? Mm. Or can I? Okay. They got the light. So I got two minutes and then I'm up. Okay. Awesome. I can't wait. Is it at least and, an adrenaline and, rush still? It depends on the the venue. The, if there's like adrenaline, like real adrenaline, like a rush of adrenaline, it has to be something crazy. It's more of an excitement of like, ah, oh, dude, I, I'm playing the game that I love to play. It's like awesome. Oh, so you're very present with each set. You're not just reciting anything robotically. You're very present with each individual set, even though the material might be the same. It sounds like you've developed this calmness and almost like that's why people meditate to be mindful in the moment. But it seems like you've naturally attained to that or maybe just enough reps where once you get up there, it's kind of a smooth experience. Yeah. So it's like I'm not uh, if you come to my show, like if you see my show twice in four weeks, right, you might hear the same stories, but they're not going to have the exact same words. It's not going to be. I'm not going to be getting to it the exact same way every night because for the most part, I'm tinkering all the time and I understand and I'm listening to the crowd, like how they're responding. And so I'm sort of bobbing and weaving and uh, purposefully I've, I've sort of crafted a style that's conversational because of what we were talking about earlier. It's like, like when I would go to house parties, I wasn't the funny guy, but I loved hanging out around. There's a funny guy or lady at every house party and they normally hold court and they're telling stories and people <laughs> love to hang out around that person yeah and so i decided like oh the vibe when people come to my show i want them to feel like we already know each other we're friends and we're at a party and i'm just the one telling the stories so i have to be present to hear how people are reacting and so yeah so it's night tonight i'm i'm in the room are you 40 yet no not quite i'm 38 do you go with the flow of this timeline of life? Or do you say, here's where I want to be in two years. Here's where I want to be in four years. Here's where I see myself when I'm 40, 45. Or are you just I truly right? I the gave wave? that up. I gave that up a long time ago. I go through periodic depression. And when I'm at my most depressed is when I'm looking up and looking at what my peers are, who are like my age are doing and what they have, because I've, I feel successful. Like I make, I've haven't clocked into a job since 2010. Like this is my career, but I'm not rich, right? I'm not rich financially. I'm not like, um, if I don't work, I don't make money. Like there's no security in what I do at the moment. So, <clears throat> so every once in a while, I'll look around and be like, oh, shoot, I'm almost 40. Oh, we're going to our friend's house. They just bought this house and look at this new truck that they got. Oh, oh man, I would like to have a house and a truck right now. Oh, maybe I should get a job. Oh man, like, did I make a mistake? Has the last 12 years of my life, why did? Why would I do this? And I'll go through this, believe it or not, like I'll go through this 
a good two or three times a year. And it'll be for anywhere from a week to a month where I'm just like deeply depressed because I'm comparing myself to what everyone else is doing. And then my Instagram feed is all of these like inspirational clips, like all these Kobe Mamba mentality type things. And it's like, it just takes like a handful of those for me to just like look in the mirror and go, the grass is always greener, right? So it's like the people that have all of those things are often telling me how jealous they are that I get to do the things that I get to do. And so it's like everyone, you know, every once in a while I have to look at uh, where I am and where I've come from and what I've achieved and like be stoked on it the way other people are. And so I don't have like a set timeline of like when things need to happen because in the artist world, it's like, it's going to happen when it's going to happen or it's not. And all I can control is uh, putting out work and content that I'm proud of and, and living with the results. Yeah. You develop enough life experience. Then you could say, I have been depressed before. It lasted a week. It lasted a month. And like you said, you find a quote from Kobe. It makes you feel good. So maybe you could roll with the punches a little more. But is that what you found to break out of the funk? Because everyone has a funk, no matter who we idealize. When you say grass is always greener, I don't care right. who I idealize their life. They're probably looking at another life and saying, man, that looks good. But outside of a Kobe quote, do you have any other like tools? Because I imagine there is some mental health in stand up comedy that I'm fascinated with. what you're doing with your life i'm so excited to hear more about the inner workings of it because we all just see the comic on stage with the microphone but i like to hear about you know how how you ride at the highs and lows because it's so clear that there are going to be lows even for someone who's at the top right now who knows what their career is going to be like in a couple years right i let that period of darkness or depression run its course And then at a certain point, I go, stop feeling sorry for yourself and get back to work. And I just go on stage and get back to work. I don't look around. I just keep my head down and focus on the work. And let me call this until until it hits again. I'll call it a profession. Is depression a part of the profession? Because I listen to Bobby Lee, Santino, Patton Oswalt, Maniscalco. I'm just listing my favorites, Sarah Silverman, Mm -hmm. Louis C.K., I listen to them on podcasts and they all talk about the depression that is connected to this profession. And I was just wondering, like, can you possibly have a life in stand up without it? Is it even possible? Uh, I don't know. I haven't met uh, another comedian that's like, I'm happy all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe that's all people like Angela as well. You're connected with Angela Johnson. Mm -hmm. Who has Mm -hmm. a Netflix special. I mean, her career has skyrocketed, but she also has a lows. I'm I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm sure she does. I don't share my lows with her and I don't, she does, she's never shared like, oh, I'm having a tough time with me. So I don't know, but I would assume most artists, your musicians, your actors, your comedians, your, you know, poets, whatever. I think there is, we ride the wave, dude. Yeah. Can I ask you something about her? Mm Mm-hmm. My wife and I were running through your clips on YouTube. We were watching your special. The ice cream's not ready. And I was explaining Mal tours with Angela Johnson, big name in comedy. And to explain Angela Johnson, I just figured you show the nail salon bit. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to minimize her career, but does it come down to that impression, that Vietnamese nail shop impression? Is that like truly the launching point, her viral appeal? 
Is yeah, that dude, is she, that what started I, it all? Like, can a comedy career really come down to just one clip, one impression, one bit? Yeah, I think um, every comedian, every musician that you can think of, all of your favorites, there is one joke that's st- that was the hook moment for you. Yeah. And normally that moment happened for a ton of other people, and that's why they're famous. Angela's career, like, all of our careers are about right place, right time. And when that bit went out was like right when YouTube started. And so it was literally one of the first viral videos. Like I remember someone sending me that video and that was like a couple of years before I even the thought of doing standup was even a thing. It's like, Oh, look at this video. And yeah, so that sort of catapulted her from doing open mics to touring in clubs and headlining and she sustained this level of work over 16 years now, yeah know? do you feel like you've had that bit yet and i i mean that bit where you're like holy shit this is so genius this is so high level you know almost when i saw brian scalera with the sneezing i was like that is mm-hmm. such a closer like that sneezing yeah. bit it floors me every time And you're right, whether it's a musician, a rapper, a band, there's that song, there's that hook, there's that bit Mm -hmm. where it has a full crowd who can remember it forever. Frank Caliendo's John Madden. Have you Mm -hmm. stumbled into that bit yet? I mean, no, dude. That's why I'm filming this podcast in my garage in La Mesa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I definitely have bits that people that I know stick with people that they take home with them. I have this bit about the ketchup drawer. That's like one of my, one of the bits of people request like, I like all the it. time. Like, I know are it. you, you didn't do ketchup drawer. Well, like I, I brought these people. I told them you were going to do ketchup drawer. And it's like, I don't know. Like I'm always trying to, to write that next bit or write the joke. So when I have that bit, I have material to go to as well. Like so, there are comedians that have a bit take off and then they, go on tour and it's like well i just have i don't have any other so i want i would prefer to have the um russell peters experience which is like he was touring for you know a decade or something and then does this special that he puts out on youtube and it goes viral and then he starts touring and he's like oh yeah well i actually have like two hours three hours of (laughs) actual material that no one's ever heard of because I'm working like I'm not, tr- you know, trying to to be a one joke comedian. And so personally, it's like I don't do ketchup drawer every night because I don't know. It's weird for me, Josh, because I tell stories. And so it's like the ketchup drawer bit is six minutes. So if I have 15 minutes on a show. I'm going to dedicate six minutes to doing this story correctly. And then Mm. it's like, if you've heard it before and you've heard it a couple of times already, whatever, I could see people in the crowd and I'm like, oh, like they've heard this and they know where I'm going and it's going to take me six minutes to get there. And so some people, I could see some people checking out and that's something as an artist that I have to get over. And that's what I've noticed that um, my peers who are, you know, highly successful at a level above mine is like the ability to lock in and just play the song, dude. Yeah. Play the song. I feel like we just stumbled on the key to life. 
You don't want to plateau. You don't want to attain such a high level of I did it satisfaction where you could almost become complacent, chasing the next great bit. Yeah. Maybe in many other fields as well, not just comedy, but I kind of like that. It keeps you hungry. Stay hungry, right? Yeah, but am I holding myself back from success because I'm deciding to not do this thing that people actually want to hear that they like they want to hear it so they could share it with their friend and then maybe their friend shares it with another 30 or 40 people and I'm selfishly standing in my own way and not doing it because I'm like, oh, I see two people that I think have probably already seen me before and they've seen this bit. So I'm going to like do this new stuff that might not hit as well. And but I'm going to know, like as an artist, I didn't just do the thing that I knew was going to work because or the comedians in the back of the room. I don't know if they're talking about me because he's just going to do the ketchup drawer again tonight or whatever. It's like all of these thoughts are thoughts that do go through my head and a lot of them are irrational. And so I'm that's like a personal work that I have to do to be like, do what I want to do. because I like it, not because of what I think other people think. And that's easier said than done for a lot of artist type jobs. Yeah. Creating the playlist. I remember I saw Nick Swartzen at the Masonic in San Francisco, huge Nick fan because of the comedy central specials I've seen. And he just did all the material I've already heard. And I sat there not laughing, but the crowd loved it. And I figured, okay, either they're hearing it for the first time or they're more of the music crowd that wants to hear the hits. I don't love the hits. I love a comic who even brings up a notepad and says, I'm going to try something kind of rugged. I love that. As a comedy fan, give me something that you're still working through uh, as opposed to the ketchup drawer, which you know is the hitter. I mean, that's just me personally. Yeah. And that's like um, you, the people like you might be 60% of the crowd, but 40% of the crowd brought their friend. And as wants to show them, you know, these jokes that they love, or, you know, sometimes it's 60% of the people just want to hear the hits. And they came because they saw this bit on YouTube and they thought it was hilarious. And they're like, Oh, I want to go see that live. And then they come to your live show and they're expecting to see it. It's like, you go and see Bruce Springsteen and he doesn't do Thunder Road or he doesn't do (laughs) the, whatever your favorite song that you bought the ticket to see like i love this song we're gonna go see him live and he's like thanks for coming here's all the here's some new stuff that i'm working on and you're like dude i don't care i want to hear this <laughs> right right and i've i have i think i'm gonna start to i think i'm gonna as a exercise and i haven't said this out loud i'm just like thinking as we talk here it's like i think as a exercise i'll start doing uh catch a drawer like once a week to keep it sharp and for those people that do like come to the show and they're like, I want to see this. Cause I'm, I can feel now, especially in San Diego. It's like when I go on stage, there are people in the crowd who know like, Oh, I know I've heard him on all the morning shows or I've seen, I've heard of this comedian before he does a ketchup thing. And like, there are some people that probably do want to see it live and I'm holding myself back. Yeah. I mean, your material is going to evolve just because you're a dad. I noticed that watching your special is that as your kids grow and develop through these phases of life, your material is going to reflect where you are. So it won't be stagnant. That's why I think parenting 
it's kind of important. It does keep you on a path where you feel the growth. You actually feel the growth. That's why when I saw your special, it wasn't all about laughs. It was learning about Mal. It was, you know, yeah. not, not one man show type stuff, but I was like, oh, okay, right. look at Mal's relationships with his kids, <laughs> observations. You know what else I loved about your special? What's that? It was not an hour. I don't feel like specials have to be an hour. I was so thankful. I was like, this dude gets it. Everyone thinks there's this prototype of what a special is, but yours had mm -hmm. some uniqueness to it. Plus the last few minutes where it's just edited footage of you with fans, uh, mm -hmm. whatever song was playing, yeah. whatever filter. I was like, this is sweet. Like, this is really dope the way it's edited. <laughs> oh, dude, I appreciate that. Love I appreciate it. I appreciate that that you watch it all the way to the end because like um, the director and I we put the special together. It's the ice cream's not ready. It's the name of the special. If you haven't seen it and you want to watch it, if you go to malhalltv.com, it'll just go right to the page so you can watch it. But every single part of this special was done with intention. Like we so many meetings before we went on this tour and so many like zoom calls like during the editing process and like down to like those filters at the end and and like how the closing montage started and how it ended was all conversation and like i don't know for four months we were the only two people that saw it and so at a certain point i was like dude whatever you want like i think it's fine now like i'm sick of watching myself <laughs> and i don't know that anyone is even going to watch it all the way to the end to like notice these tiny little details that we're changing just because we're both artists and we're like i'm not going to be in a sleep if i know that this thing is yeah and so many people too like uh have messaged me like about little things that they saw in that end montage meaning they watched the whole special and the end credits to the end is like super cool that people spent the time and to your point about the length of the special that's all i'm gonna do good like i'm filming a special this year with the same director we're gonna do another one and it's like i think the goal now will be every year to put out a new half hour and treat it like a netflix series between 25 and 35 minutes normally and that's what we we're conditioned to consume that amount of time and if I, you know, three years down the road, maybe I start filming two a year and then I put them out by, you know, obviously two times a year. And then when people watch whatever the newest one, it'll be like, oh, if you like that, this is episode one. It's called The Ice Cream's Not Ready. And then people discover them and they're like go. episodic because people will watch three hours of TV 20 minutes at a time without yeah. even thinking about it but to sit down for a full hour it's like i don't know there's you a know? lot of specials out right now and when we say the word special an hour-long special i mean most of the time it's 30 minutes max are special so if you're putting out a special that's around 30 it is special most of the bits yeah. most of the material is going to be special all right before i let you go actually i remember once you brought alonzo bowden into my radio show and i said that to him before i let you go and he's like what already <laughs> Before you yeah. let me go, he was ready to hang yeah. out for the whole show. Yeah, It was super cool. I'm going to ask you, because I know you're a fan of this. You don't just do it, but you're a fan of comedy. The greatest set you ever remember seeing. And for me, as I answer first, uh, Tommy, <laughs> Dav Tommy Davidson at the Comedy Store in La Jolla. Um, this had to be 2005, maybe. He's in a okay. Doug Flutie powder blue Chargers jersey. 
Okay. Uh, and he went up there with, I think, 15 minutes of material. It was the late show. And he stayed up there till almost 1 a.m. You could tell wow. he was creating with us. And it was mm-hmm. so memorable. I was crying with laughter. But also, I was thinking, I've never seen anything like that, where a comedian kept saying things. And then to himself, he'd go, I got to write that down. I got to write that down. That worked. It was like we were mm-hmm. all workshopping together until 1 a.m. And I love Tommy. I mean, he's so multifaceted and multi-talented. But as long as I live, I don't think I'm ever going to see a set that was as memorable as Tommy Davidson in the Flutie jersey. Uh, what about really? you? Can you add <laughs> all the comedy you've seen of one comic where it was just like everything came together and it floored you? It was so funny. Um. So I... When I was in L.A., Chappelle would drop into the comedy store and my friends that would work there, would I would tell him if he's here, just like text me and I'll come up. I want to watch. So he would do that. He would pop into the comedy store and do, you know, like three hours. He would sit on stage for three hours and just like talk to people. And some of those nights I've never laughed more where it's just like, dude, this guy is like I described Dave Chappelle as like if you're creating a player on Madden for co- like a comedian he's like every skill is at 99 just yeah. like crowd work you know storytelling joke writing it's just like all so watching him live is crazy um kevin hart i saw kevin hart in nashville and front row at an arena show and i had never experienced something quite like that it was amazing um he's like a comedian that you should see live like in the room it's like he's unreal he's a force yeah yeah and the show that pops out most recently is just like oh my god i can't believe that i'm here like this is amazing is i i saw Chappelle at the hollywood bowl and it was the night that the the guy attacked him on stage you were there huh i was there and that show was the coolest shit like that was probably the most hilarious lineup i've ever seen um john stewart's on the show and all these comedians did 20 to 25 minutes before Chappelle came out to do mm-hmm. his hour so i saw john stewart i can't remember the whole lineup but john stewart earthquake chris rock came out on that show sebastian was on that show most deaf and Talib Kweli were on that show. No Jabawakis way. were on that show. Damn. And then Chappelle came out and did his <laughs> his special. And it was like, oh, my God. I saw Sebastian and Chappelle on the same stage. Like, this is crazy. Wait, remind me. He gets tackled and then he continues doing jokes? Or did that end the set? No. So he got tackled as he was getting ready to introduce Mostef and Talib Kweli. And so he... They f- get those people out of there, and then he brings up most definitely to live, and they do their holy shit. Set. Yeah, it was crazy. I hated that. I just hated it. Any story of the audience getting out of hand, it was it's, wild. It's just beyond bothersome, obviously. Yeah, Mal, I'm so stoked you did this. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, man. Thank you. This was fun. Congratulations to you for do for sticking to this thing for five years. It's like I'm trying to get a podcast going, but I have to first get up the the stamina to like stick to a schedule and do it. And it's like um, I'm really working at finding something I could talk about every week or twice a month that I can that I can do. And I might have to just suck it up and 
cracking a microphone and starting talking, you know, and find out what happens. But please do. That's I salute how it starts. You. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. No, you'd be great. Plus, you got at least one listener here in San <laughs> Rafael. Um, do you ever come up to Cobbs or the Punchline? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm scheduling a bunch of headlining shows for the next um, for the summer right now because Angela is Angela's pregnant. So she's going to be having a baby, I think, in May. So I'll be off the road like I'm I still tour with her. So I'll be off the road with her from May until September. And so I'm really taking the opportunity to like just basically headline in all bunch of cities that I haven't been to on my own in a while. So like San Francisco is one of those cities. I'm going to be in San Jose in April for sure. So I'll be in the Bay area in April, but uh, to answer your question, yeah, I'm booking shows all over, all over the place. And hopefully, hopefully San Francisco is one of them. Nice. I'm gonna come see you, buddy. I really appreciate yeah. you coming on. Wish for sure, you nothing dude. but success, man. Stay in touch. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you very much. Have a good week. All right, buddy. Thank you. All right. Later. All right. There he is. Great guy. Mal Hall. Check him out online. He's a real comedian. He's really living this. Sounds hard, doesn't it? I mean, he makes it sound like he's got a grasp on the business side of it. But I could not imagine the adrenaline, the nervousness, the volatility. I still idealize stand-up comedy. I mean, it still sounds amazing to embark upon that as a career. But that was a real inside conversation. little inside baseball conversation about the highs and lows and just the journey altogether. So I appreciate you listening. Leave a nice rating on iTunes or Spotify and tell a friend about this podcast and then tell that same friend about Mal and then tell him about the podcast again. Drive the point home. You know, Kip loved LaFonda, but he needed people to know he still loved technology at the end of Napoleon Dynamite. Let your wedding guests know, I love my bride, but don't get me wrong, I still love technology. I love it. All right, folks, that's episode 208. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 